Chunsafes. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where we start the program central side boarding the Star Ferry. But not any old Star Ferry. It has to be one that was built by Bob McCurdy, who worked at Kowloon Docks. He was the dear old dad of David McCurdy, who joins me this week for a tour of his childhood. He was born in Greenock, a shipbuilding town on the River Clyde in Scotland, and came to Hong Kong in 1960 at the age of four. David McCurdy is a poet, a mechanic, and a former Hong Kong motocross champion, as well as a drummer. He's also a KG5 boy who had an idyllic childhood in the Kowloon Docks community. I have never been aboard a steamer. I am just content to be a dreamer. Even if I could afford a steamer, I will take the ferry boat every time. I love to ride the ferry. This is the Twinkling Star built in 1964 and the plaque says Hull constructed and machinery installed by Hong Kong Wampo Dock Company, which is where my dear old dad worked. So you need have no fear this particular vessel has been built by experts. <laughs> Being a kid from Kowloon, we didn't travel that often to Hong Kong side. Certainly in the early 60s there were occasions when we went across. Particularly here we can see from the Hong Kong side the City Hall and the auditorium there is where they used to hold the Hong Kong Singers productions which my dear old dad was a very keen member being a had a fine tenor voice so as children we were obliged to come and sit through the matinee uh, twice a, yeah twice a, yeah twice a year uh, to listen to Gilbert and Sullivan which uh, at the time I was sometimes a reluctant attendee but uh, since then I much appreciate the sort of musical background that it afforded and I can probably sing along to a lot of the choruses of, uh, you know, the Mikado. And I am right and you are right and all is right as right can be. And you are right and we are right and all is right as right as right can be. And all is right as right can be. Right as right can be. So we're crossing on the Star Ferry these days. How far, how long is it? It's about six or seven minutes, isn't it? Uh, actually, I think it's a bit shorter than that. But uh, I think previously it was seven or eight minutes to the old uh, terminal, and now I think it's probably closer to four and a half or five. So we've got a big barge crossing uh, with uh, loads of sand here on a rainy day in Hong Kong. So a bit a bit grey going across. But for me, uh, actually, gosh, looking around, we're about five people on. We're in first class, aren't we? We are in first class, yes. I wouldn't go on second class because uh, historically the kids who went to KG5 who lived on uh, Hong Kong side, if you went on second class, it's because you wanted a sneaky smoke away from uh, the prying eyes of teachers who also came across from uh, Hong Kong side. A sneaky smoke? Yes. So were you, uh, were you down there? Well, I wasn't because I was a Kowloon side kid, but I know that all the, all the naughty <laughs> boys who had a nicotine habit uh, would, would go down there in the hope that they could have one last puff before attending school. In terms of your dad though, when he was making these star ferries, when you say he was making them, was he an engineer? 
Yes, uh, my dad was in charge of the machine shop at uh, Kowloon Docks. So, you know, he would have had a hand in much of the construction of this. I mean, he, he wasn't a, in charge of the riveting and the hull making and all that, but, uh, you know, they would make all the prop shafts and things like that, you know, so the, the machining work that needed to be done, he was in charge of it and, and would have uh, overseen that. The hull was constructed there, and then I think all the woodwork, these lovely seats we're sitting on with the sort of stars in them, um, I think that was probably put together by a local construction company, woodworking company. Uh, but the, the basic, it says there, if you look on the plaque, it says that the hull was built and the machinery was installed at Hong Kong Wampo Dockyard. So uh, I'm not sure how much they built, but I think the, the bones of the thing is, uh, is what was constructed there. So where are we going now, David? Uh, we're going to the peninsula and uh, walking along Salisbury Road and uh, just walking past what used to be the welfare handicraft shop where my mum had her first job as a volunteer and now we're walking past, I'm not sure if it's still Shanghai Tang, but that was the old fire station when I was a kid. No, Christian Dior now. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, one can see there's an old Dennis fire engine round the corner, oh, yeah. which is uh, to pay homage to the fact that this was indeed a fire station. In fact, during the 1950s, there were two Rolls-Royce Silver Ghosts from the 1920s, which had been turned into fire engines that were in service here. So there you go, and a bit of motoring uh, ephemera. Yeah, and that's super, the Dennis fire engine here on the end. So when you're passing what's now Christian Dior, coming along Salisbury Road, so we're just about to go under the underpass and then off to the peninsula. Well, we'll be passing the YMCA, which was always a great favourite as a child, because it was the one place you could go and buy things like the Beano Annual and all the, the monthly comics that would come. My brother, my sister and I would, would always get comics. My brother would have these hot spur annuals and stuff with adventurous fellows, you know, flying biplanes and First World War and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, my sister would have the ones that, you know, girly type ones. And then we would go there to have our hair cut, which was always a bit of an ordeal because they used this stuff called bay rum, which was some kind of alcohol rub and it made your head sting afterwards. They also had a lovely restaurant in the YMCA and on the rooftop they had an aviary, which for a little boy was fabulous. So this is a nice little nostalgic trip for me, just walking this short distance. I mean, this area of Jim Joy with the peninsula, when you're all growing up, in Kowloon Docks. Were you down here at all just to go and get the Star Ferry? No, no, we were down here all the time because it was, uh, well, <laughs> my dad used to come down to Chim Sa Choi and I'm not sure why, but he would always bring me with him. Ostensibly, this was to go and look in some of the toy shops in Carnarvon Road and Modi Road. They had a lot of toy shops there, but actually we'd go there and have a quick browse. He would then repair to the ship inn for a quick uh, pint or two and some of his mates were there and so it was a bit of collusion. I got to look in the toy shops, he got to have a quick beer and nothing was said by either party once we got home. And of course I'd have something nice in my pocket, a nice little uh, toy car or something. <laughs> we'll move backwards to your Scottish heritage. Yes. But here we are, it's very nice, we've gone past the, the loudness of Salisbury Road and here we are in the quiet beautiful sanctity of the uh, peninsula lobby yeah well this is uh, a great favorite because our family doctor 
uh, who was the doctor for all of the uh, people who lived in Kowloon Docks, was Anderson and Partners, and they had a surgery here on the, the west wing on the second floor. So we would have to come here for our shots. We had to get six monthly cholera shots then, and if you were traveling anywhere, there was a catalog of things you had to get from, you know, diphtheria to beriberi to goodness knows what else. And you had to travel with, with a health certificate with a, along with your passport so my mum would bring us here when, when there was anything wrong with us and so the doctor was just in where they've got the arcade with some of the more luxury good type yeah, shops exactly. these days yeah yeah but it was up upstairs i think the second floor okay. so yeah we would come here you know you fell over and got hurt or something then you'd be brought here to have a couple of stitches and whatever was needed it wasn't always a happy occasion when you were coming to the peninsula but then my mum would bring me down to the the lobby for a compensatory seven-up float and a sticky bun. So that's always great memories of sitting in this lobby with my mum and so having a seven-up float would be fizzy lemonade with a bit of ice cream in the correct, top. Correct. Yes, yeah. that's right. It would be a seven-up, which, as you say, is lemonade, and then a scoop of vanilla ice cream in the top of the drink. In the top of the drink. And if and then did it all fizz up? It all fizzed up considerably, and it was delicious. And there was another one called a black cow, which was the same thing, but vanilla ice cream scoop in a Coca-Cola. <laughs> so along with the doctors upstairs, there were regular shops as well? Yeah, I mean, it was always an upmarket place. There also used to, uh, Cathay Pacific had a, a desk here, uh, and you could check in for your flight here and, and then just go by car, you know, subsequently. So you arrive in Hong Kong in 1960, so at the age of four? Yes, four years old. And uh, it's funny because I can remember very clearly elements of my life in Scotland before we came here. And where's Greenock where you grew up? Where uh, you had, well, you had your first years. Yeah, Greenock is a shipbuilding town on the mouth of the River Clyde where it comes into the sea. And Greenock's claim to fame, because it's a deep water port, much deeper than further up the Clyde, then they built a lot of the big ships for the British Empire. There was a, there's another shipbuilding town on the other side of the river called Dumbarton and that also was a place where they built the big ships because they also had a deep water port. Dumbarton's also quite famous because Sir Jackie Stewart, the three-time Formula One champion, came from there. Your mum, your mother, was, uh, was she a country dancing champion? Yes, indeed she was and funnily enough that's how she and my dad got together. She had been a country dancing champion and she was a dancing teacher so this was before the war and my dad was an apprentice in the shipyards there and during the war my mum was sent to the shipyard so all of the ladies had to go and do some war service and she became a lathe operator a lathe lathe, lathe operator in the same shipyard that my dad was working in and what happened was that during the war they needed entertainment for old people's homes, hospitals where troops had come back injured and my dad had a very good tenor voice and so he was always called to come and sing and my mum was called to come and do a bit of dancing so they ended up together going and, and doing this it's sort of reminiscent of what Bob Hope used to do you know in, <laughs> in, a, in a bigger way but uh, yeah they would they would go and entertain people and so they were they were just together in each other's company frequently and and they ended up falling in love and, and getting married so uh, that's the reason I'm here through art <laughs> your parents have so they they meet through country dancing and singing yep 
and also through their war work. Mm. Now, Hong Kong is absolutely a world away from Greenock, Scotland. What, what was the decision behind deciding to move over here? Uh, funnily enough, I, I don't really know. I had asked my dad that, and he said that he just thought it would be a better life for the family. There is a little bit of background to it in as much as one of my aunties was born in Hong Kong. So it's a, a lady who married my dad's brother. And uh, her father had worked for Taiku Dock. He joined in 1907 and he sadly passed away in 1909 here in Hong Kong. In fact, he's buried in Happy Valley. So there were links between Greenock and Hong Kong. The other thing is Taiku Dockyard had uh, quite a substantial share in a dockyard in Greenock called Scots, and they would recruit their expatriate staff from there. So it wasn't so alien as going to Timbuktu or something like that. There had been a, it looked like a well-trodden path from engineers from Greenock coming out to the Far East and, and prior to that coming to India and other colonies. That probably made it a bit easier. There was history there of people my dad knew within the community. You know, Scotland was quite a drab, cold and miserable place in those days. All of my memories in, of Scotland are in black and white and all of my memories, once we got on the boat, are in colour. <laughs> When you arrive in Hong Kong, I mean, were you put in temporary accommodation? or No, we went straight to Kowloon Docks where they had uh, some fantastic terraced housing there. They had seven terraces and each terrace had seven or eight houses. Some of them had six and... Uh, what sort of houses? Two-storey or...? Well, they were two and a half storeys because they had a go-down that was about six-foot headroom and the rest of the house was two-storey. So they'd been built in the early part of the 1900s as accommodation for the expatriate staff. We were in a compound that was absolutely beautiful. There was a swing park for kids and bowling greens, tennis courts. We had our own clubhouse, which was massive. I mean, there was a badminton court in it and a, a billiard hall for the gentlemen and a bar and a ladies' lounge, a children's lounge. I mean, it was, you know, it was huge and a lot of grounds where as kids you could ride your bicycle, there weren't any cars there. It was really heaven for a kid. And, and of course, the, the thing that was the most enjoyable that there was 50 families there so there was always someone your own age and so everybody became you know you had best friends and so this is at Kowloon Dock so who who was the company running it so who was your father working for uh, he was working for Hong Kong and Wampo Dock Company Limited which is one of the first companies on the stock registry it was a public company so it was a well-established company and shipbuilding was was massive business then uh, which is why Taiku Dock opened in the early 1900s, but it was, you know, a long way behind. Historically, they were a long way behind Kowloon Docks in, in terms of when they opened, but they, they opened to open that business to get the benefit of the increasing business in ship repair and shipbuilding. I mean, the, the Star Ferry thing is, is, of course, it's relevant to our history, but those were tiny vessels compared to some of the other ones that they built there, and it was, it was mainly ship repairing. So the ships would, would come, the merchant ships and other ships would come, and they'd have some problems, then they would be repaired in Kowloon docks. They would have had so massive areas for these ships to be in dry dock. Yes, yes, indeed, there were there were three dry docks in Kowloon docks. 
some of them smaller, some of them bigger. And also there was other space where you could moor a ship, you know, if there was some repair that didn't require putting it in dry dock, which many of the repairs could be achieved by, you know, leaving the ship in the water. So there was a lot of area there for ships to be tied up alongside as well as being in the dry docks. So did you go and visit your dad there? Or was it really, were you right around it all the time? Yeah, well, I used to go and visit all the time. I mean, there was a wall around the dockyard and the residential compound, but there was no wall between the residential compound and the dockyard. So as kids, we would wander down, and I'd sometimes go to my dad's office, and and we weren't supposed to really be playing around, but, you know, we would go and they'd store these huge propellers, and we'd all, you know, do hide-and-seek in amongst the propellers. I mean, if one shifted while we were in there... I don't know what would have happened, but anyway, we did. We did. We used to, uh, you know, be naughty and go and play there. For me, it's also interesting just how long Hong Kong, when you think about Hong Kong being fourth biggest financial centre mm. these days and everything, you know, that you really have to say, well, yes, but half a century ago, it's still very much heavy industry here. Yes, very much so, yeah. And, uh, you know, you also find that in other districts of Hong Kong, you know, let's say uh, Kuntong, for example, was built very much as an industrial area for many of the garment factories and other industries. And, and, you know, there were a lot of plastics factories and and a lot of heavy industry and, and light industry, but, you know, very much mechanized. And so you were saying with these seven terraces of two-and-a-half-storey houses, yes. describe what a go-down is. Well, a go-down would be a place that originally you would store the coal for your fire. You know, we had fires upstairs, uh, fireplaces, and uh, the dockyard would deliver you know, half a tonne of coal to each house at the beginning of winter. <laughs> and and uh, so you were just supposed to store things in there and... Uh, uh, there was uh, accommodation for the domestic staff out the back, which was standalone. But a lot of them actually lived in the go-down. It was more convenient. Access to the house was better. And I think it was more cosy there as well. You're the youngest of three. Yes, that's so right. So you've got, what, brothers or sisters? Uh, one brother who's nine years older than I and a sister who's five years older, yeah. But you would actually, I mean, when you've described these 50 families and this kind of neighbourhood mm. of, of always having children your age, um, so those are within the Kowloon docks themselves, and uh, you were telling me that you'd go out on a tugboat, that the families were taking out on a tugboat for picnics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> we, we were, they were referred to as launch picnics, and during the summer... Every Sunday, there would be one of the tugboats, which the dock company had their own tugboats, and we would all go down to the dockyard, and the tugboat would be there, and we'd all pile on and and go out normally Saikung Clearwater Bay area, which then was uh, deserted, really. And uh, each of the ladies would bring something that they prepared to eat, and uh, there'd be, uh, you know, a couple of eskies full of ice and beer for the gentlemen and soft drinks for uh, for the kids. And, yeah, we'd just go out as a community on these Sundays. So and the tugs were quite big? The, well, yeah, the tugs were massive. Uh, I mean, much bigger than you needed. They only used the tugs because they happened to be there. It, you know, not all 50 families came, but certainly there were 20-plus families would come every time. When I went to school, I mean, we just arrived and I was I joined Kowloon Junior School. I'd ha- I was four, but 
I was somehow just within the right age group. So I was always the youngest in my class, but I was allowed to go to Kowloon Junior that year that we arrived. We, we would only go to school half day and then come back. So my mum always made sure she was back when I was there. And then once I started going to school full-time, then my mum got a full-time job. What was her job in the end? Ah, well, now that's another story altogether. My mum worked eventually in police headquarters in special branch. Oh, that is a different kind of story. <laughs> My dad used to refer to her as Hong Kong's equivalent of Miss Money Penny. Uh, but a lot of the a lot of the ladies from the dockyard worked in police headquarters, and they were confidential assistants, clerical work. In those days, the uh, colonial government would only employ British passport holders in potentially sensitive areas even even if they were doing clerical work so that's how a lot of the ladies from the dockyard once the kids were old enough and going to school full-time they thought well why not go and earn a bit of extra money and uh, and so that's what they did but the funny thing is that during the early 1970s Kowloon docks got the contract with the Soviet government to repair the merchant ships that were doing the Asian routes. And so these Russian ships would come in to Kowloon docks and my dad of course was always in the thick of it because he was in in charge of the machine shop. And so my dad would have to deal with the chief engineers and all this kind of stuff on the Russian ships and he would always host a cocktail party for them at our house so my mum would invite her colleagues from special branch who'd uh, come in their plain clothes my dad would invite all the uh, Russians from the ships to come and, and it, you know it was like something out of a John le Carre novel but uh, yeah it was you know it was a, a lovely ironic kind of thing but they were they were very delightful and in fact there was one gentleman who was the he represented the government there and he was based in the dockyard in the end he lived there with his wife uh, Soviet Union uh, his name was Viktor Romanov and his wife was Helena and they were delightful people. My parents became very good friends with them. And uh, when my dad retired, he moved to Newcastle because you had to retire at 55 then. My dad wasn't ready to retire. So he worked for a company that was uh, based in Newcastle. And uh, Victor and Helena had been transferred by then, representing Soviet shipping, to Newcastle. So they <laughs> used to see each other. It's interesting when you're talking about these Russian merchant ships that would come in. So this is early 1970s. So do we still have, I mean, that, that would have been a Cold War time? or No, no very much so. And uh, Hong Kong then was a listening station for MI6 or whatever it was, you know, listening into China. And in fact, there was, I recall in the newspaper, there was a couple of times where there was some kind of spy things when there was a Russian ship in town. Yeah, we'd grown up in that era when as kids you thought Russians ate children, you know, so you were a little bit wary of them. But one of the areas of, of waste ground we had, the Russian seamen set up a volleyball court, a net there, and they would come up to the residential area and play volleyball and, and we would chat to them and they didn't speak much English, we didn't speak any Russian, but it really, it was quite momentous as a child because then you realised they were human beings and it, it, 
took away that notion that they were some alien beings who, who, as I said, ate children or did other appalling things. We could, they were friendly and and, and playing volleyball. And, and played volleyball. And uh, I suppose a slight political awakening in many ways, as you, you know, maybe as a 14, 15 year old, you start to be able to think for yourself. And these are the kind of instances that you observe and then start thinking, well, what's all this about, you know, Russians being bad people? They, the ones we've met here seem very pleasant, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I think it's interesting seeing you as a teenager having this and through your father and, and Kowloon Docks, you know, these, these sort of experiences. But I also find it interesting just that how Hong Kong is possibly different to Britain at that time for, you know, the fact that the, the merchant ships are coming into here. I don't know whether they would have gone into Britain in the same way. No, I think you're probably absolutely correct. But the good thing about Hong Kong, business first has always been the motto. And it was a good contract. So they did it for quite a number of years, and it was, you know, obviously very lucrative. Uh, that was also a time when there were cheaper options in Asia in terms of shipbuilding. Korea was starting to come into its own, some other areas. And so they were having to fight quite hard for the business because there were options for companies to take their ships elsewhere. So I think it was a timely contract for them, and they were grateful for it. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about the Kowloon Docks kind of families and community but you spent a lot of time out on the streets well we did because i think the thing that really sets us apart from most other expatriate kids is that although we lived in wonderful accommodation but we were bang in the middle of a working class chinese neighborhood and which was what hung hum. in hung hum there was all these shops you could go down wuhu street there was shops selling dried fish there was a rice merchant which had these big wooden vats with rice and a, uh, had a bamboo stick in with a with a chinese character telling you the quality of the rice and then there was a stationery shop was one of the favorites because in stationery shops you couldn't just buy pens and paper. They also sold shuttlecocks, badminton rackets, basketballs, firecrackers, which, of course, was the great favorite. So uh, we were always in the stationery shop buying so stuff. Did you, did you buy firecrackers for Chinese New Year? Uh, we used to buy firecrackers all the time, just messing about. You, you, know, you could buy firecrackers there all year round. So, of course, we would... We would buy lots of them at Chinese New Year, but Guy Fawkes Night that we celebrated as a community in Kowloon Docks, we would all, you know, get firecrackers. And, and we also had a... So on the 5th of November. Yeah, there was a big waste ground, and we would build this pyre and, and put a guy on top and all this kind of stuff. But there was, you know, the, that, that local flavor that we were able to absorb by living in a Chinese neighborhood was, was something that really stays with me till date. Within the Kowloon Docks residential area where you live, these I, I like this idea of seven terraces. Yeah. Um, now, around Christmas time, you would you would go around carol singing. Oh, very much so, yeah. You know, we did so much as a community. It, it really was like one big family. Christmas Eve, we would have carol singing, and uh, they had this pedal-operated 
organ. I mean, you had to push the pedals <laughs> like a bicycle to fill it up full of air. So there was a this small organ, and there was so you just filled up the bellows. Yeah, well, whoever was playing it had to continually pedal while they were doing it. At really, the the organ I think was there just to play the first note so that people could start singing in the right key, you know. Uh, and actually, the one of my childhood friends, a chap called Philip Todkill, he had learnt to play the piano against much resistance. He never liked it, but he was always cajoled to come along and play the organ. And he's got horrible memories of that. And I've got such fond memories of it because he was forced to come and play the organ all the time. But um, it was a lovely thing, you know. We would we would go around all of the terraces and there'd be candles in the windows and uh, and people would come out who, who weren't with us. I mean, there would be, you know, 20, 30 people all going around carol singing. Not everyone came out. But we went around all of the houses. And then we did the same thing at Guy Fawkes, not singing, but we would go around all the houses and let off firecrackers and things. And uh, and we also celebrated the Chinese festivals, Lantern Festival and Chinese New Year. So we, we just, we were lucky we got to celebrate festivals that were Western and Chinese. And, um, yeah, it was just a, an idyllic childhood. My thanks to David McCurdy there on his childhood in Hong Kong in the 1960s. David is the son of a tenor and a country dancing champion. He himself is also a drummer, a poet, a motocross champion and fixes classic cars like Rolls Royces and stuff. So he's coming back on the programme. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>